How do you handle it when you find yourself in a conversation with someone whose religious views don't fit neatly into any one category? If you studied world religions, cults, other worldviews at all, then you might know how to interact with Islam, Mormonism, atheism, and wokeness. But when you're talking with an individual, you can't just recite rote answers. Having a conversation with an individual who holds one of these views is more complicated. It's more challenging. People are unique. They have their own unique views. And dealing with individuals gets tricky. It even gets trickier when the person doesn't subscribe to one of those mainstream views. So how do you handle it when you find yourself in a conversation with someone whose views are unique and you don't necessarily know where they stand and you don't necessarily have a ready rebuttal? This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Bible teacher and a former pastor who used to defend the Christian worldview the completely wrong way. Then God changed my attitude and my approach. Now I help Christians talk about their faith with confidence and be able to answer questions about it, whether coming from the world, from their kids, or from themselves. Today I'm going to walk you through an informal debate that I had with a Hebrew roots Arian. Now, I use the term Arian because Arius was someone who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean that he denied the identity of Jesus as being one with Yahweh. He denied the Trinity. Now, Mr. Griffin, the person that I'm speaking with in this episode, doesn't use the term Arian for himself, and I don't mean any disrespect in my use of it. He considers himself a Torah-observant follower of Yeshua. But as we're going to see, he has a different Yeshua, a different Jesus than the one revealed in Scripture. And so we're going to answer the question, how do you handle it when you find yourself discussing theology with someone whose views you can't immediately pin down, you don't know where they're coming from? And this is useful because as you grow in your ability to articulate and defend the Christian worldview and to pass it on to others, you want to be ready to have a conversation with anyone about the gospel and the truth of Scripture. Learning how to do this will not only help you be able to evangelize in your own local area, but it'll also help you pass on your faith to the younger generation. It'll help you lead your family in having these tough but very necessary conversations with their own non-Christian neighbors, the people in their lives. So last year, I was invited onto the channel of a man named Sean Griffin. Mr. Griffin's views are very unique. And he had sent me a very gracious invitation to come on to talk about our differences over scripture, our similarities in evangelism, as well as our views on discipleship and a couple other connected topics. I replied to him that I might be out of my element somewhat in that I don't think of things in the same categories that he uses, but that I had done some thinking about the relationship of the Christian believer to the law of Moses. And so I knew that he was somewhat of a, a, a Torah observer, or at least his version of Torah observance. Um, and I knew he was going to have some views that I was going to find to be unbiblical. I thought we could have a good conversation about this. So that's all well and good. But I did not know the full extent of our differences until we talked. And in this episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Mr. Griffin. It's a long one. And... I'm going to walk you through it with my own commentary as we go. Now, that adds more length. So to help with length, I've cut out the intro in the initial video. And 
in that part, I share about my story. You can hear about uh, hear about my story in episode three of Worldview Legacy, which is called My Origin Story. So you didn't need to hear that here. And I've also cut out the audience questions at the end. If you want to listen to those, you can go back to the original video. Again, that's on his channel. The link is in the show notes. So if you've ever wondered about the Hebrew Roots Movement, or if you've been wondering how essential belief in the Trinity really is, or if you're just the kind of guy who enjoys hearing and learning from a theological debate, I know many members of the Think Squad are that way. You like to listen to debates, theological discussions. This episode is for you. Specifically, you're going to hear Mr. Griffin and me get into the following topics. How many plans does God have for the world? What does it mean to obey God's commands and live? Should the old covenant be interpreted in light of the new covenant? Or is it the other way around? Was the old covenant law for the righteous or the unrighteous? 1 Timothy 9. Are we in the new covenant yet? What does it mean to be righteous in the new covenant? Hebrews 8, 11 through 13 and Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. What is the gospel? What paradise did the thief on the cross go to? Luke 23, 43. Whose death made Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and launched the new covenant? Hebrews 9, 15. Are we free from God's commands in the old covenant or not? Does Mr. Griffin believe in God's triune nature and that God and that Jesus is Yahweh? What did Jesus mean when he said before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58, and are Arians and Christians actually brothers? Now, if you enjoy this, then you need to know about our free community. We are close to 700 members who are all on the same journey as you, and we share ideas. We get solid answers to questions about the Christian faith and how to defend it. It's called the Think Squad, and I'll tell you more about the group and how to join at the end of the show. So now let's get into my discussion, my debate, informal debate, with Sean Griffin. As you'll see, our conversation begins by talking about the relationship between the believer and the Old Covenant law. Um, I think we wanted to really talk about discipleship, which is what we've been touching on, as sure. well as we wanted to talk about um, this idea of New Covenant theology, because I've heard you do a couple of broadcasts on that on your channel, and and you do kind of ascribe to that. I, mean, I don't always like to use the labels terms because sometimes not everybody understands the definition of that term, right. so then the labels can misrepresent. But you do kind of self-describe your, you know, as New Covenant theology professing yeah. and teaching, and yeah. so card carrying, uh, card carrying. Okay, I've got the certificate up on my wall. I'm official, official member of the NCT club. It's very official. All right. <laughs> So I took some notes from one of your videos where you and another brother were talking about New Covenant Theology. He's talking about my video that I did with A. Blake White on the topic of New Covenant Theology and whether or not it's biblical. We did that back in 2020. And these are some of the, the seven bullet points to this understanding of Scripture. And this was, uh, and I think well, the reason why I thought this would be cool to talk about and for you to explain to the audience why you believe this mm -hmm. is because um, it does lend into discipleship. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really discipleship is the underpinning on which all this stuff is relates back to because it is how we move and breathe and walk out with fear and trembling our salvation, right? As we disciple after our Messiah. We started out by talking about the first bullet point. How many plans does God have for the world? And New Covenant Theology teaches that God has one plan centered in Jesus Christ. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. 
So number one on this new covenant theology list was that one plan of God and it's centered in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Is this like an accurate statement. What does that, what does that mean to you? Oh, um, well, essentially what it means is that God does not have um, two peoples. God has one people and one plan. And that plan was, was devised between the father, son, and Holy spirit prior to the creation of the world. And through um, what the Bible is, is the Bible is the authoritative divine record of God carrying out that plan. And so in the old covenant era, you have these covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And the, the promise is of a new covenant to come. Um, but all of the, but there's one plan and that plan is expressed in these many different covenants. And so um, this is where. So, so if I may ask a quick question. Uh, so then you're in that idea of taking the multiple covenants mentioned in the law and the prophets and putting them into this one plan. Sorry, I got to suddenly a fly comes in here. Um, I'm, I'm in my illustrious garage studio. So nice. uh, apparently sometimes the flies get in. I don't know. <laughs> um, so basically within this wonderful plan, you have multiple covenants that you're including into that one plan mm-hmm. by the father for mankind, even stuff like David's, David's promise of mm-hmm. kingship lineage, right? Is that included like that? Cause that's called a covenant yeah. in, in Samuel. So is that mm-hmm. also included in that idea? So, but the reason I say that is because like that idea with David, his promise from the father, um, yes, it does lead to Messiah. It does lead to Jesus Christ mm-hmm. as that, as that wonderful King that will reign forever on that, on the, throne of David, which was a lot of people don't realize that's an old school or a ancient culture moniker for a position of authority in a, in a, in a country, they would take on like their most popular King. They would take on that moniker and pass it on as the throne of uh, Xerxes or the throne of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why there's multiple Darius's, multiple Xerxes, multiple Nebuchadnezzars. Now this is where, and, t- and if you disagree, that's fine. But this is my understanding of researching ancient history. This is where we get this idea of the throne of David, even though it's literally, we, we don't believe in Judaism where they think that it's somehow going to be David actually sitting on that throne again. We think we understand it's to Yeshua. It's Jesus that sits on that throne forever as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That was the fulfillment of that covenant. Um, not a reincarnated or re-resurrected David sitting on that throne. So yeah, any um, more than John the Baptist was a reincarnated Elijah. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, Jesus explains that. And so that's where um, it would be the throne of David as the moniker of the ultimate authority in Israel. That is, you know, that Jesus fulfills that place. Yeah. So then you do include that type of promise, which is also kind of covenant into promises of the covenant, say, like with Noah, the covenant of Noah in Genesis eight and nine with, you know, the um, never destroy the earth again by flood. Yeah. Um, well, I don't include it. God does. So okay. the, um, well, I mean, in this bullet point here, I'm just trying to ask for a, Oh, is this, yes, this is just correct. a summary statement. It's not like mm-hmm. a full on breakdown. So I'm just trying to get a better understanding yeah. for the viewer. Yes. So yes, the, um, the one plan of God, um, you know, we, we first get an inclination of, uh, what, how this plan is going to carry itself out in Genesis three fifteen, in what we know, what we know is the proto evangelion. Uh, proto first evangelion or evangelion gospel gospel meaning good news and it's a theological term that we've used to describe the promise that god gives to the serpent actually that 
God would put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, or between between him and the woman, and between his offspring and her offspring, and that he, the offspring of the woman, would wound the serpent's head, and that the serpent would wound the the offspring's head, the, this man, right, uh, who was who would be the seed of the woman, and so all throughout Scripture, then um, we have God alluding to d- developing. Uh, progressively revealing this plan. And so how does Noah, even, uh, you know, Jonah, Jonah didn't have a covenant, but Noah, David, Abraham, in, in all of these various covenants that the Lord makes, they all in some way point to Jesus. Uh, they all, they all in some way. So, you know, Noah. And I think that's what, um, one of these other bullet points alludes to, right. Um, which is that the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of the New Testament. Correct. Yes, that's right. And, and okay. so which is these... number two, number two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and at least that's what, that's what this theology holds to. That's the mm-hmm. hermeneutic yeah. it holds to. Okay. Exactly right. So, okay. so there's one plan of God, um, you know, so uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Habakkuk two, four says that the righteous will live by faith. Romans one seventeen says the righteous will live by faith. So this idea, uh, Hebrews 11 talks about, you know, it takes you through the hall of faith, you know, Abram or uh, uh, Abel, Enoch, uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, so on and so forth. They all believed in faith and it was their faith that that unified them to God. You know, you go through that list and it's like, oh, Jephthah, Samson, really? These guys, uh, David, Gideon, these guys had major moral failings. How could they all be in this list of this this hall of faith? Well, it's it's because it's not their works that saved them; it's their faith. Right. It's God's grace. Like, uh, like Yeshua explains that he who endures to the end will be saved. That was the first indication that I had that he really might believe in a different gospel. I mean, I did have some of that expectation going into this conversation, given his emphasis on the Torah and Torah observance and the Hebrew roots theology. But did you notice how he said, he who perseveres to the end will be saved? The fact that he put the emphasis on what we do, look, that's not unbiblical. If you're a believer and you are saved, you will persevere to the end. The question is, are you saved because you persevere to the end or do you persevere to the end because you're saved, you're regenerate, you're born again, you've got the Holy Spirit living in you. So I didn't address it right here, but we do get into the gospel a little bit later on. So listen for that. So this is where I always try to remind people, uh, Matthew 6, 48, this idea where Yeshua talks about, um, you know, if, be perfect even as my heavenly father's perfect. Well, that, that word in the Greek is a word that actually means to be complete till the end. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you got to be without failure, but it means that you got to be complete to the end. And that's, Correct. that's consistently how it's used. And also in Hebrews 10, as well as in the old Testament in the Hebrew. And that's where, you know, like Jephthah, we don't know much about his life other than the, some of his military campaign and the vow he made over his daughter. But Ultimately, we assumed by Hebrews 11 that he was complete till the end in his faith. He didn't abandon the faith. And even though he had some problems, the same with Samson, even though he had some problems um, and he suffered physical consequence for those problems in his mortal life, but that he he will receive the promise of the covenant, which is to live. And I love how you mentioned those verses because 
we always talk about and try to define words, right? So we always talk about what is that word live in that, like the Habakkuk verse you mentioned, the Genesis verse, like what, when it says that do these things, Leviticus 18.5, do my statutes, ordinances and commandments and you will live. What is that word live about in your opinion? All right, things get a little convoluted here because it might not always be clear which covenant I'm talking about and which covenant he's talking about. You see, in Leviticus 18.5, the Lord says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And you know what? Jesus actually echoes this in Luke chapter 10. An expert of the law comes up to Jesus to test him. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks, what is written in the law? Of course, that's talking about the law of Moses. Jesus asked him that. He says, how do you read it? Well, the expert in the law comes back and says, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This expert in the law was very savvy. He had probably heard Jesus having previous, having similar conversations with others previously. And so Jesus goes, you, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, what is Jesus doing? Is Jesus saying, you are going to be justified by your law keeping? No, Jesus is, Jesus has a twinkle in his eye as he says this, because the man immediately asks, and who is my neighbor? In other words, the man is realizing the, the tightness and the constriction of the law. It allows for no deviation whatsoever. As James says later, if you have broken one command, you're guilty of breaking them all. Well, this man realizes he has not loved his neighbor as himself. So now he's going to try to justify himself. That's what it says in Luke 10, 29. So this promise, do these things and you will live, is all well and good if you obey the law completely. But that is not how the new covenant works. In fact, the apostle Paul in Galatians 3, 11 says this. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because, quote, the righteous will live by faith, end quote. The law, however, is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. So the law is not based on faith. The law is based on perfect obedience. And that is why no one can be justified by the law. And then in context in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 Paul goes on to explain how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so that's where I'm trying to take the conversation here is to talk about the curse that we are under and how Jesus sets us free from the curse. Well, I think it ties in with John 1, 1 through 12, the, the, the prologue to John, where it talks about that um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, not anything that has been made has been made. So um, the, John develops this idea of the Word being the, uh, the, the light, and the light was the, uh, hold on, let me see, make sure I get this right. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so um, why is it so important for God to reveal 
light and life to us? Well, it's because ever since Adam, we've been in spiritual death. Um, spiritual death and physical death are the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. Right. And so um, mankind has been placed under a curse. Um, is it Ezekiel 18, I think, that says the soul who sins shall die? Right. And so, um, it, of course, kind of lends into foot, Romans 5.12. One more time, Romans five twelve. That, yep. that kind of lends into Romans five twelve. Yeah, For sure, that, mm -hmm. and Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death. Yeah. And so, um, so we now, is he talking about the death in the mortal body or like the second death? Um, well, both. Um, okay. be, because you know what happened with Adam is God promised him that he would die on the day that he ate the fruit, and okay. he didn't die physically. Right. Um, not, not for a long time. Not not for a long, not by our standards, a very long time. It's like, man, yeah. that's, you know, seemed to have it pretty good, actually. And on another uh, broadcast, if you ever want to talk about that, I can go into some fun passages in Ezekiel and we can discuss about the lifespans because I think it's a young earth creation argumentation uh, idea. So, but I'm sorry to derail. I'm, I'm a young earther. I'm with you on that. Yeah, you yeah just, me too. But um, I just, I don't want to derail. I apologize. I just, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we human beings as a species are, you know, we're, we're conceived in sin. David says in Psalm 51, we're, we're, we come into this world, hating God. We come into this world, loving death. We're under the, 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 uh, the kingdom of darkness. Okay. So is this kind of like coming from a, a presupposition, if I may, um, of original sin, like a Catholic idea of original sin where all the, the soul that, that immediately is a born is immediately inherently unrighteous and, and wicked and deserves death. Yeah. Um, I mean, it predates the Roman Catholic church, I think going back to scripture itself, uh, you know, Hebrews, uh, Romans five um, talks about that, which you just mentioned, but yeah. we all, we, we are sinners because we sin, but we also sin because we're sinners. So that's why David can say in sin, my mother conceived me. Um, we, yeah, we, we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. There's When God promised Adam that he would die on that very day, and he didn't die physically, there's only one other way that he could die, and that's spiritually. Okay. And so if God is the source of life, which he is, we would expect someone who's spiritually dead to avoid that life like, um, you know, like, a, I don't know, a, someone who avoids something, avoids, I mean... You see, Adam uh, hid from God, you know, he, and then not only did he hide from God, but his relationship with Eve is broken. He started blaming Eve. Eve started blaming the serpent. Yeah, so that, creation that first was marital fight. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's rough. And, and so, you know, your original question, what does it mean to have life? What does it mean to live? Um, we were created to serve and glorify God. And Jesus says that et uh, eternal life is knowing the father and knowing him. So there is no true life apart from the life that we are created to live in fellowship and in communion with God. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, that no one comes to the Father except through him. So eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's what mankind has been longing for, yearning for, and also running from ever since the, the fall. Okay. Um and, and just for the audience's sake, they're, they're used to me asking a lot more questions. And I just, guys, I'm letting you know that he only has so much time today. So I'm trying to get through, uh, we're trying to, oh, trying I can to move. Oh, I my answers shorter too, Sean. No, it's okay. I'm not, I, I hope that we can do this again. And I don't want you to think that this is like a, an inquisition of any kind. I'm just, 
truly, you know, I, without having the time to watch your entire video catalog, right? I don't know everything you believe. So I wanted to have an opportunity yeah, for yeah, us yeah. to share sure. and get to know what we think. Um, there's quite a few things that you have mentioned already that I would, if we had more time, I would be raising questions on and asking about certain scriptures and how you come to these conclusions. Yeah. But um, today I just, I wanted if possible to, uh, to get through some of what you do believe, because it's an interesting introduction to hopefully we can have more conversations in the future. All right. Now, Sean wants to move on to the second bullet point, which is talking about why the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of the New Testament. We're still not talking about discipleship, but let's go with it because discipleship has to do with how you follow Jesus. And these questions about the covenants and their relationship to one another is very important to how we follow Jesus. So this, uh, this number two kind of relates to number one, as we just talked about, the Old Testament should be According to this theology, the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of the New Testament. Now, when I saw this, my, you know, I was taking notes, and I was looking down, listening to the video, and I, and I saw this, and, the, and I just immediately uh, popped up, and I was like, wait, what? So this, this, with all transparency, brother, this sounds absolutely backwards to me. What, so help me understand this thought process and number two. Sure. So uh, this is the hermeneutic that Jesus himself applied to Scripture. In this next section... I have a hard time getting Sean to actually look at the text and see what Paul is saying about the law. Listen to listen to who is looking at the text and who is trying to import his own ideas into the text. What I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show Sean that the very words that he is reading negate his position. He believes that the law is for the righteous. I'm trying to show him what Paul says about the law, which is that it is for the unrighteous. So Jesus took 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 7 to interpret Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which is where those instructions come from, from Paul. Uh, say, say that again. Okay. So in 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 7, mm -hmm. Paul is expressing the Torah. He mentions a whole bunch of instructions that he's teaching Timothy to abide in that are directly from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And you're saying that our Messiah in his earthly ministry took the New Testament, the Old Testament, he, he already, he didn't have a New Testament to, to cross-reference from. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that he should have, that he did interpret the Old Testament through the light of the New Testament, even though it wasn't created yet. Uh, I'm looking at 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. I'm not seeing the reference to the Torah. All the instructions that he's talking about in that mm -hmm. passage? Um, those are, those are the instructions for righteous behavior from the, mm -hmm. from the, the books and the earlier part, the law and the prophets. So that's, um, he's not teaching anything new to Timothy. Like this is straight up just, you know, old Testament stuff. Um, so he says, cause he's talking about being teachers of the, oh, I apologize. I meant to say one through 10. Um, so he, in verse uh, seven, he's talking about being a people that want to be teachers of the law. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to talk about, we know the law is good if one used it lawfully, Obviously, yeah. the Pharisees were not using it lawfully. They were using it to twist and oppress people and lord over their position of authority over people. Um, yeah. He says, realizing the fact the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Now, this is for the work of judgment, which why he goes on to mention rebellious acts outlined in the law. And then he, which is like sexual morality, homosexuality. I mean, this is like Leviticus, uh, Leviticus um, 19. Yeah. Leviticus 18, uh, 20, I think, or 22. And then, you know, slave traders, that's Exodus 21. You're not supposed to do that. It's also in Deuteronomy. 
Uh, liars, don't do that. That's in mm-hmm. Leviticus 19.11. Perjurers, don't do that. That's in Deuteronomy, I think, 22. Uh, so like this, obviously, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 6, don't be a murderer. Um, you know what I'm saying? So like this yeah. is all straight up stuff that's from the Old Testament law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about those who do these things will receive the penalty of the law. But obviously, if you're righteous, you're not have, you don't have to worry about that because you'll when, be using the law lawfully. Well, you know? who, does it, who does he say the law is for there? The law is not made for the righteous person because they're already doing right behavior, right? Well, that's what that's what. Well, who did, and then, yeah, but just who does it say that the law is for? The law is for all of it's Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Uh, no, it's, verse nine there where it says, "We know the law is not meant for a righteous person." Sorry, I'm reading my translation. Let me read yours. That's okay. Uh, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for who? Hmm. It goes on to mention rebellious deeds, things that are against the law, sins, yeah, transgressions but, of the law. I know, but what I'm what I'm trying to zero in on, Sean, is who does he actually say the law is for? It's for the for those who are not doing it that that need to know what how to to learn the law to do right behavior. Yeah, so I guess I'm looking at specifically at verse nine, where he 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 says, "Let me make you it see it? I don't know if you can see my highlighted area. I got it highlighted here for us. No, I, um, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, there. Um, so in verse nine there. Um, and I think this is very important. It says, "For so it's the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and all the things that you just mentioned. So the law is actually not for the righteous, correct? Because the word righteous is defined by someone that's already doing right behavior. Well, the what? How are we? How are we made righteous in the new covenant? By following Jesus's um, instructions to do right behavior, that's how you're we're talking about. You're talking about what well, you're talking about imputed righteousness in Romans three, where we get at the resurrection, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, regardless, this is a you brought this. What I'm, what I'm saying is what what that first, what that second bullet point of New Covenant theology is trying to say that that you're you're expounding upon it to say that Jesus, yeah. in his ministry, taught. The Old Testament should be interpreted in light of the New Testament, yet they didn't have the New Testament. And I I just threw up a random passage where I know that the Old Testament is being explained by Paul in the New Testament. Yeah. What so just I'll I'll just for the sake of time, I'll tell you what I'm getting at here. So uh this passage does not um lend credence to the idea that the law of Moses is for believers in the new covenant. Um so then what behavior do they abide by? The law of, uh, in the new covenant, you mean? Okay. Yeah. In your in new covenant theology, what, what, because that goes to the basic standard definition of discipleship. So what behavior would they abide by in the new covenant? Yeah. The law of Christ. Okay. So what behavior did Christ do? Well, the law, you mean, what is, you're jumping, I feel like you're kind of jumping ahead. So we, what is the law of Christ or, or are you saying, what did Jesus do? Well, cause Jesus, if, Jesus. Oh, I see what you're saying. Doesn't the word law just mean instruction? Torah means instruction or law. Yes. That is, yeah, that's what the word where the law the nomos came from, right? Uh yeah, but you have to I don't know that every time that the word namas is in the New Testament, it's always referring to the Torah. It's not always referring to the Torah. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it's talking about the law of the Pharisees, how they had imposed uh their Jewish traditions, which they called law, which really weren't laws at all. I mean, we see this in Acts 10 when Peter's trying to, you know, he's Peter's having to get schooled by the vision um, about how to treat Gentiles without prejudice. Mm-hmm. And so um, because that was a law imposed by the Pharisees for, through Judaism that Peter was. That's not in the Torah, by the way. That's that's a man-made tradition. So, yeah, I'm just saying, like, if Jesus 
the only way we define Jesus to be without sin was that he never transgressed the law of God. That was the only standard for right behavior that he taught. And that was the law and the prophets given from God through the prophets for mankind to do. Uh, and in Psalm 119, one through three, uh, the, the almighty actually calls those instructions, his moral behavior. Yeah. So the, so I, it took me a minute to figure out what you were saying there, Sean, but I think I understand if I, if I understand correctly, you're saying that, uh, Jesus Christ himself followed the Torah perfectly and therefore calls us to, he calls us to follow the Torah perfectly. Is that what you'd say? Well, not only like logically through the thought process, but actually literally in, in multiple verses in the gospels, okay. he tells us so, to do the commandments and yeah. So, okay. So just really quick before we move on from the first Timothy passage, right. um, Paul is, um, Paul is calling out, those false teachers who try to be teachers of the law of Moses, but he's also, he's, he's saying something that's very much in line with the is rest that, of his teaching. Is that what he's saying? Like he's talking about people that are false because they're teaching the law of Moses. Well, they're, they're false teachers who, who are teaching the law of Moses, but okay. Paul I makes see. a distinction between, um, so the law is good. You'll never hear Paul condemning the law. Although the, right. you will see Paul call the law a ministry of death. He'll say the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Mm -hmm. And the uh, in Romans three, he says, "Do we nullify the law? No, we uphold the law." Right, so it's Romans very important. Yeah, it's it's. Sorry, one more time. Uh, Romans three thirty one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very important that we understand by seeing. So by seeing the proper role of the law by by using the law lawfully, we have to understand what the purpose of the law was. The purpose of the law was to wake up sin. Sin brought death and condemnation. God gave the law to Moses to show how holy he is, to show how sinful we are, to show how much we need a savior. And so... Um, I, I totally agree with that. I also see other verses in the Old Testament that, that directly in Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy where, where the Almighty says, um, you know, if you keep these, these will be righteousness for you. Like Deuteronomy 625, he's like, if you keep my ordinance, statutes, commands, like all of them, these will be righteousness for you. It gives us like a working definition of right behavior in the mortal flesh. I'm not, and, yeah, and, so and they weren't arbitrary. Be, yeah, yeah, they're not. It's not like he's saying, you know, I've just given these to you to show you how awesome my son's going to be when he shows up because he won't. No, right. Yeah, no, correct. He, they wanted them to walk right because obviously the opposite behavior of that instruction from the creator, the opposite behavior was what the nations around them were doing, which is all listed out in like Leviticus 18 through 20, which is a whole bunch of, you know, mass, different types of fornication, different types of mm -hmm. idolatry, different types of lying, backbiting, murdering, gossip, you know, child sacrifice. Yeah, all that horrible stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, that was the opposite behavior. So then Yahweh was like, all right, well, here's my behavior. I want you to practice this and you will live. And so therefore, yes. this we see Yeshua exemplify this perfectly. He does practice that behavior perfectly. Um, I mean, and then he gets resurrected, first fruits of the first resurrection. So, you know, amen and hallelujah. Uh, he definitely received the promise of the covenant before all of us. This is where Sean reveals that he doesn't believe that the new covenant has actually begun for believers yet. He says he thinks that Jesus is in the new covenant, but that Christians are not, or, or followers of Jesus are not. Um, so that's, I think, maybe where we probably disagree a little bit on the application of New Covenant theology is I don't think we get to the New Covenant until you're actually resurrected in your glorified immortal body. Uh, whereas traditionally in church, I was taught we're already in the New Covenant. You know, you're already a priest and king with God. You're already mm. 
you're already filled with uh, all of his law on your heart. And I'm sitting there going, <laughs> Joel, I would sit there and say, and I know you disagree with me. So this is why I just, you know, I'm just, yeah, yeah, no, my perspective. I, I get it. That's, that's why I, we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I would just say, Hey, you know, if that's the case, if it's already on my heart, how come I don't know it? How come I still struggle greatly with walking it out in my early years and was trying to get better at my sanctification process and discipleship. And, and I would have a pastor tell me, but you're already righteous in Christ. And I'm like, yeah, what does that word righteous mean? Because if I, if I already do have right behavior, then why do I still have to learn it? You know? Okay. A couple of things are going on here. One, his pastor was right. If Sean had been a believer, then positionally he would have been right before Christ at that time meaning he would have had Christ's righteousness imputed or credited to him. But that doesn't mean that all of his deeds will be righteous. Learning to walk in righteousness is part of sanctification. In Hebrews 8, 11 through 13, it says, And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, and each his brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins." That's a precious promise, and it's quoting Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. What that's saying is that in the new covenant, we have God's forgiveness. We don't need anyone to teach us, know the Lord. We don't, in the new covenant, everyone knows the Lord. Everyone is free, forgiven, and knows the Lord. Members of the new covenant, which we call Christians, don't need to be evangelized again because we've been evangelized. We've believed the gospel. But the process of sanctification, of learning to walk in that righteousness and how to do right deeds and how to follow Jesus, how to obey Jesus, that's a process that takes a lifetime. So then I had, I struggled to understand why people were saying that I was already in the new covenant because of the definitions of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 of, of when the new covenant is mentioned. Um, even repeated by Hebrews chapter eight, verses 11 through 13, you know? So uh, that's, that's kind of where I, I guess I would differ with the new covenant theology um, uh, for the most part, I suppose. So you don't think that we're currently, you don't think that the new covenant has been inaugurated. It happened. It's inaugurated by Yeshua entering into it. First of all, mankind as mm -hmm. the first fruits of the first resurrection. And then he is the one that resurrects us revelation three, five, on the last day at the seventh trumpet, he resurrects us to our glorified immortal bodies. And then we enter into the new covenant at that point. So this is where the new covenant applies to immortals, in my understanding, the resurrected saints. The old covenant applies to mortals. Now it was time to get to the really most important question. Remember, this whole conversation was supposed to be about discipleship, following Jesus, and Discipleship is is a, is for believers. It's for people who are actually in the new covenant, I believe, people who have been born again, people who are saved. Discipleship is that process of learning to obey all that Jesus has commanded, according to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But the only way that you get into the new covenant is by believing the gospel. So now I had to ask, what is the gospel according to Sean? So, Sean, um, I wonder if we agree on um, what on the gospel. What do you believe? What do you believe is the the gospel? How does someone become a Christian? They have to put their faith in Christ that they would, you know, He came, lived, died, resurrected, right? It's John three sixteen. God sends mm -hmm. only begotten Son, she would not perish for everlasting life. But that life, I'm trying to define the promise of getting that life and what that life is. 
And, and, and is it, is our salvation contingent on us living a certain way? No, I mean, obviously the thief on the cross is kind of the skating in at the last minute there with, you know, but here's the unique part about the thief on the cross. At least he was repentant, right? He tells the other dude mocking Jesus, the other thief on the cross, Hey, he, you know, this guy's innocent. We are up here because we deserve what we did. Mm -hmm. And then he turns to Jesus and says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right? Yeah. Did Jesus, so, did Jesus go into his kingdom that day? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, Jesus, um, Jesus told the thief on the cross that he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so Jesus, did, did you know, Jesus my, my, go to paradise that day. Yeah. My understanding of that is, is Jesus went down to, so paradise is the good side of Hades, Abraham's bosom, what the Greeks called Elysium. Jesus went down to Hades, uh, Sheol and, um, because doesn't know, Paul call paradise the, uh, the the New Jerusalem? I have to give me chapter and verse. I'm not sure. Second Second Corinthians twelve one through three. It talks about so, it being in the third heaven. And uh, yeah, but he doesn't call it paradise, though, does he? He does. All right. Now I will admit that is something that I really wish that I had pursued further. What is the gospel? I really should have asked Sean to flesh it out, and really seen if his answer matches up with Paul's answer in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 10. In that passage, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel, which is of first importance, is the atoning death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is the message that saves. It comes with a call to repentance and faith. And everyone who believes the gospel, who entrusts themselves to Jesus, is saved. That is the crux of everything. And Sean immediately redirected the conversation to talk about the thief on the cross. And then we started talking about other things. I really wish that I had stuck with the gospel. One more note on this word of paradise. I mentioned that the word paradise describes the good side of Sheol, Abraham's bosom, the good side of Hades. And that actually is true. But what I didn't realize at the time, and I now do because I've gone and done a little bit more research, is that... The word paradise can refer to heaven. So the Apostle Paul does describe his trip to heaven as a trip to paradise. That was I was wrong about that. Sean was correct about that. It also describes the Garden of Eden, and it also describes the good side of, of Sheol. It was a term used to describe Abraham's bosom, which some people believe was heaven. I personally am convicted, uh, I am of the conviction that prior to Jesus dying for our sins, None of the Old Testament saints were able to actually go to heaven. I believe they went to Sheol, which is what you read all about in the Psalms in the Old Testament. But Sheol, as Jesus describes it, or Hades, another two words for the same thing, had a good side, if you will, and a bad side. And the good side is known as Abraham's bosom, or it seems like it was also known as paradise. Joseph Benson was an old Methodist preacher, and he wrote a commentary. And when it comes to Luke 23, 43, here's what he says. Observe, reader, how the state of happiness prepared for holy souls after death is set forth. First, it is being in paradise, a garden of pleasure, the paradise of God, Revelation 2, 7, alluding to those gardens in which the Eastern monarchs made their magnificent banquets, or rather to the garden of Eden, in which our first parents were placed when they were innocent. It is termed Abraham's bosom in the story of Lazarus, 
and was a common expression among the Jews for the mansion of beatified souls in their separate state. In the second Adam, we are restored to all that we lost in the first Adam, and more, to a heavenly paradise instead of an earthly one. It is being with Christ there. It is the happiness of paradise and of heaven to see Christ, to be with him, and to share in his glory. So, this idea of departing from the body and being with Jesus upon death is something that Jesus promised to the thief on the cross, and it's something that's going to come up again in this conversation. And also Revelation uh, 2 and 22 talks about the new the kingdom of God being paradise. So I agree with let me, you. Let me look that up. The, the good side of Sheol yeah. on his death on the cross for three days. I'm not sure what Sean is referencing here. In Revelation 2, Jesus does say that the tree of life is in paradise. But Revelation 22, I looked there and I didn't see the word paradise mentioned. So he might have just had the wrong chapter there. I don't know what he was getting at. And But I'm just saying that I, I don't. I think that the great resurrection of the saints doesn't happen until the second coming, until the last trumpet. Like, oh, that's, you know, that's correct. Yes. But to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And, you know, but, it, when, but is my grandfather present with the Lord if he's in Sheol waiting the resurrection? He's not. And that, so that's why, so prior to Christ's death, Christ's atoning death, there was now, now this is, this is an area where I think I'm right, but I could be wrong on this. Okay. So prior so to I. Christ's, um, atoning death, there was no getting into the kingdom of God. Um, there was no getting into heaven. We'll put it that way. So when you look at the old Testament, you see like, you know, Saul was gathered to his fathers. This King was gathered to his fathers, that King there. It was well understood by the time you get around to second temple Judaism, that when you died, you descended down to Sheol or Hades and there's a good side and a bad side. And Jesus talks about this in the story of Lazarus and dives or the rich man. You know, called, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, but the, you know, then we, by the time Peter's writing his epistles, we find out that Jesus went and preached to, to the, the, spirits saint, to the spirits that were in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And so, sure. so Jesus descended into the lower regions of the earth. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, now this is where I get a little fuzzy, but when it says that Jesus ascended, leading captivity captive, giving mm -hmm. gifts to men, my understanding of that is that Jesus ascended from paradise. He, he went down, he, he basically um, uh, declared his victory to the spirits that were in prison that tried to prevent his coming when they tried to corrupt human bloodlines by corrupting uh, human seed through the production of the Nephilim, things like that. Um, yeah, so those I think that's what Peter, second Peter kind of elaborates, right? The spirits in prison before the flood in Tartarus. Yeah. 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 So, so he preaches to them. He leads the, the saints, all those Hebrews, 11 saints up with him in his train. Um, he enters into, into heaven coming, comes in the clouds. Like Daniel seven said that he would, that's him coming to receive his kingdom. Not his, not him coming back to earth. Not yet. Okay. Um, he will come back to earth. So I'm not denying that, of course, I'm, I'm okay. a Christian, but, um, but he, he takes his, uh, he takes his throne. He receives his kingdom as Daniel seven said that the son of man would, and he, he rules and reigns over all creation. Um, at that time, Jesus, according to Hebrews is told by the father, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Jesus takes his, his seat at the right hand of the father rules and reigns. And the father says, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's where we are now in human history. So when we die now, your grandfather, 
um, Lord willing, my grandparents are with Christ reigning from heaven. And someday they will return with him when he comes back and, uh, and he'll come like he left. And at that time, he will usher in the full extent, the full consummation of the kingdom. But in this in-between period, we are in the new covenant um, that has been inaugurated. We are children of God, according to John 1.12. We do have the Holy Spirit, and we are positionally righteous before the, God. We got the deposit, right? The Holy Spirit is the deposit. Okay. So it's a guarantee. It's called a surety, a guarantee, and a deposit. Mm-hmm. Depends on the translation. But yeah. the, the Greek word is the same. Doesn't Isn't that... Isn't a deposit something you get before you get the fullness of something? Mm-hmm. Okay. But the Holy Spirit is the deposit. I agree. Clear on that. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's where I would I would disagree on the interpretation of applying Ezekiel 36 um, and Jeremiah 31, 33, 34 to the deposit, where I think it's the deposit now. But we at Peter tries to explain in Acts chapter 2, 31 through 33, that, that Jesus, whom you saw ascend, is now... He's in his high priest position. He's able to have to give us the Holy Spirit in a greater capacity than ever before um, in, in the history of the scriptures because he's perfect and at the right hand of the Father ministering on our behalf. Um, so I would kind of disagree on, on, I guess, some of the circumstantial details of how we're in the new covenant. I don't I think that uh, we don't get to the new covenant until the resurrection, which is why I would also this is some of the verses that have, that have supplied my understanding from Hebrews 11 specifically, after it spends 38 verses mentioning all these wonderful people who had right behavior and were complete until they died. Mm-hmm. Verse 39 says, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Correct. Yeah. So they did not get resurrected yet because that, so here, here's my, well, no, that's, it's, well, I know, I know you disagree. Yeah. So yeah my, no, my, no, my, right. My, my understanding ahead. is that the promise of the old covenant, which is what I was asking earlier. What is this life that's continually promised that we see all the way back uh, to Abraham, at least mentioned in the in the traditional canon of 66? And is, it is this life of eternal life. It, it's the same gospel start to finish, John 3, 16, that if you believe in the Father and his prophets that he sends and you walk in his behavior as you're not going to be perfect, that's why I gave you a priesthood to make atonement. He knows you're going to mess up. But if you try, <laughs> if you in faith, you try, right, to, to live in righteousness, um, then he will give you the promise of the covenant, which is eternal life. And he makes that possible by sending his son to the position appointed to his son, which was high priest of Israel, high priest so, of the covenant. Okay. Definitely want to come back to that if we could, but mm-hmm. um, do you believe Jesus is interceding for us right now as mediator? I believe Romans 2, 5, and I believe Hebrews 10. I believe, yes, hundred percent. Okay. So I, I meant what, to say first Timothy two, five. Yeah. He's there's one God and there's one, there's uh, one yeah, Lord and there's one man at Jesus Christ meeting between man one and God. Between, yeah. yeah. All right. So Sean and I are agreed that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. Well, the passage that we're about to look at in Hebrews explains what Jesus is a mediator of. He's a mediator of the new covenant and it's his death that has secured his position as mediator. Now, This is actually a section where I give Sean credit because initially he misunderstood the passage to say that it was our death that must occur in order for the new covenant to be in effect or or to be, basically he thinks the passage was referring to our death. But then he sees, as we talk, he does see that it is referring to the death of Christ. So I view that as a good step in the right direction. I don't think he changed his position 
I don't know if he's thought any more about that since our discussion, but at the very least, he was able to acknowledge what the text says. So Hebrews 9.15 says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's right. You haven't died yet. What's that? You haven't died yet. So that's why you're not the testator hasn't received the blessing of the covenant yet. Uh, It's not my death. Well, that's what that's this is what I would say would be the eisegetical imposition into that passage. Because if that's why I say let's you know this is this is where we run into that hermeneutical approach, which is mm. trying to define the Old Testament by the New, which is I think is completely opposite. Whereas the Old Testament already promises us the promise of the covenant, which is eternal life. Well, go back in in that in the context. So I, I know you love the context of Hebrews nine. Okay, what sacrifice is Jesus offering? What is the death that's being referred to? It's not. It's not His our body. death, is it? Well, which verse are you talking about? Um, well. Uh, Let's see how far back we want to go. So, because I guess I speak, we can start with verse eleven. I, well, that's wonderful. I was going to start there, because when Christ appeared as a high priest of what of the good things to come, good things that that have come. But sure, he entered through the great having come, having Christ having come, not mm-hmm. the good things, but Christ having come. Well, there's there's a textual variant there. The okay. idea is. Well, this um, isn't the only the only verse that we, we like. I said Hebrews ten, verse three, four, and five goes yeah. on to explain the sacrifice is Jesus' body. This right. is why he repeats the the Septuagint verse from a body you prepared for me. Yeah. Um, so because he he but we agree on that. Yeah, yeah. He sacrificed himself to get to that position of high priest, which is why mm. earlier in this you know whole thing. But wait, wait. Already, before you, before you move on from Hebrews nine, can we at least can we agree on whose whose death is being referred to there in verse fifteen? Verse fifteen. Yeah, sure. All right. Before this, he is a mediator. But, I agree. He is a mediator of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Right? That's how he becomes a high priest forever. So he's mediating over us now to mm-hmm. re- receive confession of sin, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. First John mm-hmm. 1, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 5. But he's al- also Hebrews 5, 6 through 10. But he's also going to be a mediator of the new covenant, but we just haven't gotten there yet. He has. Uh, well, what does this say, though? Since that a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant. That's right. We're still under the first covenant. Who's, who's, death is, whose death is that talking about? It's Yeshua. That's how he got to his high priest position. Yes. He had to be resurrected okay. to get to that high priest position. Of course, it's Jesus. Yeah. But, but you, correct me if I'm wrong, just a second ago, you said, I mentioned that a death had occurred and you said, yeah, but we haven't died yet. So well, my no, understanding no, no, was that you, were, you thought that was referring to our death. Well, you were you were mentioning the idea of the uh, the verse that talks about the testator in Hebrews nine that it talks about. Let me go to it real quick. This is what I was talking. Hebrews nine fifteen is what I was referring to. Oh, okay. I apologize then. So then I, I misspoke to what I thought you were saying. This is why I love putting the scriptures on screen so we don't get mis- yeah 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 that's good. Um, so yeah, that's that's very simply that's what it is. Like just like all the prophets and and Jesus himself, still could move in the spirit, still could do miracles, still could teach with authority and sound doctrine before he received his glorified resurrected body, before he was in the new covenant. So can we. But from my understanding of the Old Testament, mixed with all the statements of Paul in the New Testament and Revelation, and we're just not, we just don't get the fullness of the new covenant. We don't step into that until we get a resurrected body because the new covenant is promised that we live forever and that in the land with God, which is the land of the kingdom, as well as um, we have his laws written on our hearts, so we don't have to teach him to each other anymore. Yeah. And, and, and that, that's a, 
who's our who's our teacher in the new covenant? I mean, who did Jesus send to be our comforter and counselor and advocate? That's the Holy Spirit. Well, that's Do where you, I would that's where I would say uh, this theology applies the word new covenant where it you know misapplies the word new covenant to places like you just said. Yeshua is already our, our, our master, our teacher, our high priest. And, and in the law and the prophets, the high priest was supposed to have sound doctrine to teach people how to walk with God. And so this is where we, of course, we, we look at his example, his life and his teachings. And we learn, cause he's, all he does is teach, you know, the law and the prophets everywhere he goes. So this is where I would say, yeah, of course we look at him still. That, but go on. You don't think he taught the law and the prophets everywhere he goes? Jesus, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. He, he, he taught the new covenant. He taught, he transcended the old covenant. Um, we, we, we should probably, that's probably a whole nother block of, of conversation when it comes to, uh, we still haven't fully resolved. I don't think the idea that, um, you know, we should look at the old Testament in light of the new Testament. We kind of, have, which is fine. I mean, like you said, this is an easygoing, uh, yeah. you know, free, free range conversation. Now we return to the question of the relationship between the old and the new testaments, how the old covenant points towards the new covenant and how those pointers or prophecies have been fulfilled and we are now in the new covenant. We're going to talk about the commands of the old covenant, the law of God, and I'm going to really try to drive home the point that we are free in Christ from the old covenant law, something that I believe that Sean does not. Can but, you give me, for the sake of brevity, um, mm -hmm. can you give me, for for item number two, can you give me like one good quick example of how that would happen? Uh, yeah. Oh, let's see. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me pull this up. All right. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Okay. Um, Acts 7.37 says, This is the Moses uh, this is this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet hmm. like me from among your brothers. He's referring to Christ there. Yeah. Um, man, I, I, got, I had the opportunity to, to uh, speak with a rabbi. And man, he we were going back and forth on those two verses for a long time. Oh, of, course, I bet. of course, he rejects the New Testament. But yeah. I was trying to explain to him like, hey, man, this is like Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. Here's just one of yeah. them. You know, well, and, Jesus himself said, um, let me see if I can get the exact reference. But he said, uh Oh, let's see. He said, you, you believe you pour over this, the, the scriptures, scriptures because you believe that in them life. you have eternal life. Yeah. But these are they that testify to me. And I can't, I can't find the reference, but I know you know what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and then and he also chastise them and says, if you don't believe them all in the prophets, how can you believe me? Correct. And that's the importance of, of worldview. So right. I, I believe the law and the prophets and, and we have to be very, very, I want to be very careful because like you said earlier, we have to define our terms. Sure. New covenant theology is not antinomianism and it's not um, some sort of neo-Marcionism where we reject the law and the prophets. Rather, yeah. we understand that the law and the prophets were written for our instruction. They point to Christ, which is what you know Jesus taught them, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and all throughout the New Testament. The, the, you know, the tutor the who brings us to the to Well, the yeah, tutor is probably not the best translation there okay. uh, in Galatians. It's more like a babysitter. Um, okay. Uh, restricting the the royal heir from freedom until yeah. maturity and so so therefore if we were to be babysat with our because clearly a babysitter baby you know sits over 
behavior of someone less mature than them, right? To make sure they stay in line. Um, otherwise, the house will be burned down by the time the parents get back, which I think actually happened in the temple multiple times in Jerusalem. So, <laughs> so, but yeah, anecdotes and comparisons aside, I, I would, I've always understood the idea that if you need to be babysat or watched over to make sure your behavior is in line before the parent gets home or that the ultimate teacher, the master gets home. Are you going to change your behavior once the master gets home? Or are you going to still do right, proper behavior like the master does? Well, this, this is why we need a new heart. This is why God has to take out our heart of stone from our flesh and give us a heart of flesh. And, yeah. and, and this is why he needs to pour out his spirit upon us. And, and this is why in the new covenant, we don't need anyone to teach us um, to, really? to, to know the Lord. Oh. Yeah, because we all know the Lord, everyone in the New Testament. So this is one, another one of the New Covenant theology distinctives, but everyone in the New Covenant knows the Lord. And the way I teach it in my catechism is everyone in the New Covenant is free, forgiven, and knows the Lord. So we are we are children of God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's We were just looking at that in Hebrews 9, 15. Um, we have a better Moses. We have a better Elijah, uh, a, a better prophet. We have a better Adam. Everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus Christ. This is why we interpret the Old Testament in light of what we now know in the New Testament. So what's important is not external washings. What's important is not ex external food laws or Sabbath keeping or festival keeping. What's, um, what's important is God's grace through faith. That is how we are saved. And having begun by the Spirit, we dare not try and continue by the flesh. And it's like, well, sure. the law is the law is not for the flesh. Well, Paul says the law is for the for the ungodly, the unrighteous. Doesn't and Paul in the new covenant say... we're not unrighteous? Okay. Even and that's so not wait, to say that we though, are right? sinless. It's not to say we're sinless. Okay. Um, well, I don't know we any other righteous. definitions for those words. Um, well, you said earlier you know about imputed righteousness. So well, that's that's why I said it happens at the resurrection. Well, even now, the record of our sin has been Ezekiel. nailed to the cross. God God took away the, the record of our sin, nailing it to the cross. Right, because we have a faithful high priest, just like that passage we read in, in Hebrews 9, whom even the sins committed beforehand are now taken. We have a faithful high priest who can take care of and make atonement for us. Yes. But atonement is different from um, of actual resurrection, where we will never sin again. Like Atonement is a covering over of sins yeah. transgressed and committed. To be, but, to be clear, I, I fully yeah. agree with that. But do you believe that the the record of your debt has been canceled? And well, of course, uh, that's why I believe in him for my high priest to make atonement for me, and I, I confess my sins. And yeah, of course, that's that's the that's what he was prophesied to come be as our high priest of, mm -hmm. of Israel. Yeah. So, like, I I guess I'm just trying to figure out because I heard a lot of this growing up, and and you know, I've just come to a very different understanding because of my journey through the Word. And so, therefore, to me, I understand that sin is a transgression of God's commandments. Uh, those he multiple times in, in the Old Testament, he calls those commandments eternal. Yeshua several times in the Gospels says for us to do the Father's commandments uh, specifically. Um, and so what, I is just, what is the commandment? Here's what I'm getting at. And Sean realizes this. John 6, 29. Jesus replied, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What is the work that God requires for, you, for us as believers. So, I mean, we have an example of Yeshua of, for the behavior to practice, but ultimately it's to, to believe, to, to believe in Yeshua is to practice his behavior and become his disciple. I mean, this is why we have here on screen. I mean, you've got first Peter, first John talking about, you know, if you think you've come to know him 
if you must keep his commandments, but anyone that claims to come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but that's therefore, not, but that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. And you okay. equate that with the commandments in the Torah, which we've been set free from. Well, I believe we've been set free from. Okay. So, because you feel like they were bondage? Well, I believe that's what scripture teaches. So, okay. Um, so, what about our, our Messiah um, when he tells this gentleman who's asking how to get eternal life? Mm -hmm. He tells this guy to keep the commandments right here. Okay, hold on. Let's see. Uh, where are you at? Matthew 19, 16. Yeah. It's a little hard for me. I like to be able to look at it myself. So let me just. Oh, my bad. No, 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 no. It's fine. I just, obviously, I can't scroll on your screen. So what are we at? Okay. Uh, Matthew 19, 16? Yeah, Matthew 19, 16. Okay. But then someone came up to him and asked him, teacher, what good thing must I do to, to have eternal life? Yes. Why do, you, why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which, which ones? He asked him. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false. Yes, right. Okay, good. And, and then he says, oh, I've kept all these. Good. What do I still lack? Jesus gets to the heart of the, the matter. Well, does this does does the furthering conversation negate the the initial reply? Do you do you believe that Jesus was talking to a sinless individual? No, no, no. But Obviously I'm saying, like, he, I mean, but the man was justified very... in his own eyes because of his works. He was justified in his own eyes. God, uh, Jesus prefaces the conversation by saying, "Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good," and then. He asks the man basically to give an accounting for himself. And the man basically says, yeah, I've kept the law that that's, you know, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Jesus knows he's not talking to a sinless individual. And yet without perfection, without perfect holiness, no one will see God. Uh, and but, so by works of the law, shall no one be justified. So what Jesus says is he goes, look, if you, if you want eternal life, sell your belongings, give it to the poor. In other words, this man had a massive idol. This man was not loving the Lord as God. This man was, was, um, was not, um, did not have God first in his heart. His money was an idol to him. We don't know how he earned his money, but his money was a massive idol. And Jesus says, repent and believe in me. It's the same thing that he tells you, me. I mean, if, if you and I are, are saved, it's not because we've kept the Torah, um, I certainly no, haven't. I can't, I can't. Yeah, I can't provide atonement for myself. I can't resurrect myself when the time comes. Yeah, I have to. I have to lean on Jesus for all that. That's his appointed job. I'm but just saying from this passage. That. Well, I'm just saying from this passage. If I'm taking his words without inserting my own thoughts or presuppositions, mm -hmm. I'm just taking his words and say, he he responds very directly and says, "If you want eternal life, keep the commandments." And then he yeah. goes on, like you said, just to ask a little further. Right? He digs a little deeper, but then the thing he says that he lacks, right, is straight up from the Torah too. Yeah. Just like all these other things that are mentioned. Like this is in Deuteronomy 15. Yeah, the, the law is... Um, so I'm saying like his answer is keep the commandments and then they expound in the conversation and he keeps telling him, oh, here's a commandment you're not doing. Has there, so if a person... This is going back to Romans 3 where it says we uphold the law. The law is good. So I, I want to just reiterate that in case it's not coming right. across... It's, no, also Paul in Romans 8, 5 through 8 says that those who walk in the spirit subject themselves to the law of God. So the, uh, I had to look that up. Hold on a second. Let me finish this thought. Okay. Okay. The, the law is good, but there is there has never been a mere mortal who has ever obeyed the law of God perfectly. Besides Yeshua. 
a, more, a, me, a mere mortal, one who did not pre-exist the creation of the world. Okay, okay. I got you. I got so you. other than Jesus, yes. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, no one is good except God alone. This is where everything turned. We started talking about the fundamental issue. The terms that you use to describe what happens in the gospel need to be defined through even more fundamental reality, which is the triune, three-in-one nature of God. So I'm not going to say it's more important than the gospel because the gospel is of first importance, but in order to understand what the Bible means when it says the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, you have to know who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is, and how those three persons are related to one another. So enjoy this section where we talk about the Trinity. This shocked me. He's not saying, don't call me good, I'm not God. He's saying, if you're going to call me good, you better believe that I'm God. Which, by the way, Sean, are you a, a Trinitarian? Do you believe no. Jesus is God? No, well, that's. I think that's a... I would never describe Trinitarianism as that single statement. Um, but do you believe I, Jesus is God? Yeah, I think he he's the Son of God, as the Father tells us. Is he um, created and, by God, or did he has he has he always been? I don't believe in the Trinitarian doctrine of co-equal, co-eternal. I okay, think so that, Jesus I think is. That, I think that, I, I believe Jesus's um, definition in John seventeen through through five that there's the one true God that Jesus expounds upon, and that Yeshua was with him before the creation of the world. But Jesus himself is not equal to the Father. No, he he says he's not equal, and the Father says that it's his son. Yeah, no, he yeah. is his son. He, he is it? Is did son. Jesus? Did God send oh, his no. only son, or did God send his only self? Yeah, well, I'm not a I'm not a Unitarian. Uh, uh, I'm not a Unitarian either. No. Right, right, right. It's very, well, it's, in a it's sense, very you simple. are. If Jesus it's, is not. It's if very Jesus simple. is, y Yeshua was given all authority in heaven and earth because that was appointed for the Son to receive from the Father, mm -hmm. just like. In first this, is not, this is, I think, the heart of our problem, of our disagreement. Uh, yeah, I know. But I, I didn't want to go there because it's not, I don't want to get lost in the in the Trinitarian argument. Yeah, but this but, has implications for salvation. Only for you. O only in a theology that makes it for you. Like, if no, no, I mean, believe, like, what we believe about how, what we even believe about how we're saved. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Awesome. So do I. Do you believe that Jesus is your high Mormons do too, but they mean something very different as well. So we have they to have define a our totally terms. different ontology for Yeshua. Correct. That's totally why it's important to ontology for Yeshua. They don't believe. They, they have a completely different religion. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. So what I'm asking though is, just because I don't believe in the Trinity doesn't put me out of the faith in any regard. I hope you understand that, right? Well, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then yeah, that puts you out of the faith. Didn't I already say he's God, just like Hebrews 1, 8, 9 says he's yeah. God? Yeah. Yeah, but we have to, again, we have to define our terms. There's only one God. Let me, let me, okay, let me ask you this. What This is why I'm always saying we have to define our terms as well. Mm -hmm. What's the definition of the word God in Greek and Hebrew? Well, there's, there, there, it can refer to the one true God who is triune, or it can refer to the gods, lowercase gods, the sons of God, the, the angels, if Angelic you will. Angelic beings, right. Mm -hmm. And can also and, refer to, to false gods, depends on the context. Which would, also, right, which yeah. is like the idols, the demons. And it also can even refer to rulers in authority. Mm -mm. So it just depends on the context. You have to look I, up the I, word I don't think so. Theos. Yeah. It's in the it's in the definitions of the lexicon. So I mean it's a, Yeah, it's I understood. I think that's I think that's a I think that's a misinterpretation of that passage where it says, I've I've said to you you are gods. I think he's talking oh. to the divine uh council, the the sons of God there. Okay. Um, 
Well, but, what what do you if from a Trinitarian standpoint, what would you make of these passages here in First Corinthians fifteen, where he talks about Yeshua? I believe him wholeheartedly and love him. Okay, so when he says, "Then the end comes, and and Yeshua hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, mm-hmm. who when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power," well, and he goes on to say that. Um, but when but when he says all things are put in subjection, it's clear that this excludes the Father who put things in subjection mm-hmm. to Yeshua. Yeah, when all things are subjected to the father, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. That's the Mm -hmm. father. So just like in John 10, 10, when he says the father is greater than I, just like in John 20, where he tells Thomas, I go back to my, my God and your God, just like in revelation three 12, where he says the temple of my God, right. Mm -hmm. Make you pillars in the temple of my God. Is that, do we take Yeshua at his, do we take him at his word? What do we do with that? Jesus is a man. Do you believe that, that he's fully man? Yeah. That's what, that's what first Timothy two, five says. Yeah. Right. So how does a man relate to God? Well, a glorified man is now in an Elohim status, according to one of the uses of the word Elohim or Theos. So, y- yes, but you, you're you going to be glorified someday. I'm not there yet. Yeah, that's right. I'm not a, I'm not an Elohim, little g Elohim under the authority of Yeshua in the new kingdom yet. Right. So but, what I'm getting at, though, is that Jesus is a man. And as um, stipulated by the covenant that father son and holy spirit made with one another before they sent before the father sent the son into the world okay jesus has subordinated himself to the father but that does not make him lesser uh worse than god the father it does not indicate in any way that his nature is different from the father there is one god that god you, shares a name you think i'm saying though a father think, son and holy spirit i think you may be thinking i'm thinking something else from a previous conversation you've had with someone that doesn't believe trinity doctrine Oh, it it could be. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when 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 Jesus, when you say that, um, so I've already God is not that Jesus was trying. with the Father before the world began. I actually believe that Jesus is part of the us in Genesis one twenty six. Yeah. Right. Well, he, so, that's yeah. I think Jesus is the one speaking there. Okay. So I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll see I'll see you and I'll raise you. But um, do you believe that there was ever a time when the Son was not? Um, I don't know. It does. Scriptures doesn't tell me when that time was, because if but there we, was a time, if we calculate time by when Genesis one began, right. And the father would exist it before that. And the son says that he was with the father before, before the world began, before the world was created. Um, it, I don't have any measurement of time to go by. I do have the idea of him being the firstborn of all creation, um, being the first of the works of God, Revelation 3.14, 1 Corinthians, you know, 1 Colossians. Um, uh, Jesus is not the first of the works of God. That's that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Do you Have you read Revelation 3? Okay. So I guess I, I get confused on why it becomes such a point of argumentation for Trinitarian doctrine that you have to start defining whether or not Jesus was ever came forth from the Father or whether he just preexisted. Because think about it from this point. If I may ask this quick question, I'll show you this verse. Mm. If Yeshua was with the Father, like I, I agree with you, he was with the Father before the world began. And you're just asking about his his status and nature when he was in that place before the world began with the Father. So we don't I'm asking what you believe about it, yeah. Yeah, you're asking me to define that for you because that seems to be this huge crux for Trinitarian thought and belief, right? Is that if I don't agree with the way you word Jesus's nature of existence before the world began, then somehow everything everything gets thrown off. It just yeah, makes well, it, it's it, not it, just it, the wording though, Sean. It, it has well, a lot of. Well, that's why I'm asking has, you to de- to help me define what yeah. exactly because because what exactly is the big deal 
about someone saying, I believe that Jesus existed with the Father before the world began. And that's it's, a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. To, it's to a, make that statement. And that he, together with the Father, are part of all, you know, they created all things. It was kind of a big deal. But then the, fa- yeah. the Son was sent to become a man and become our high priest, live, die, get resurrected, get glorified. And then at the end of his journey and his mission, he hands all authority back to the Father so that the Father can be all in all. Yeah. And you want to, but, but you're saying to me. So that God, so that God will be all in all. Right. And you're Go saying on. to me, as I describe that, well, the father, that's, that's what the verse we just read. It tells us, right. The father is the one yeah. that Yeshua gives the authority back to right? Yeah. And, and, and. Is, is that true or not? Yeah. The, the issue. So going, going back a minute and a half for what you just said, the, you know, you're, you, I think you, you said something about, you know, why does it matter how we word things or if your wording is different, you know, why do Trinitarians get so hung up on this, on the, the phrasing or the wording? Um, it's, be, it's because it has massive implications for our, our metaphysics. Um, the world in which we live uh, uh, has unity and diversity in it. The, the world, and, and it's like, well, which one is, this is the, the problem of the one and the many has perplexed philosophers for millennia. Because the question is, what's primary, unity or diversity? You know, if you're an atheist materialist, you say, well, diversity, we're all, everything is pure, uh, discrete atoms. Everything is, is totally discrete and there's no unifying principles. Um, someone like a, a Hindu says, Atman is Brahman, the human soul is the divine spirit and everything is actually one and all of our diversity and individuality is ultimately a, an illusion. It's, it's Maya. It's an illusion. Um, Christianity, biblical Trinitarian Christianity says, you know, unity and diversity are both equally ultimate. This is why, for example, the laws of logic are, are uh, inseparable. They're each distinct from one another, but they are uh, three and they're one and they're equally um, ultimate. And they exist necessarily, and they exist as propositions that can only exist in the in a mind, and um, a a unitarian God cannot ground something like the laws of logic. I, so I don't understand how you're defining unitarian with what I've said, because well, a God, know, if if Jesus at if if Jesus at any point did not exist, then that means he does not exist necessarily. If the, well, that's if just God a philosophical the Son, presupposition you're imposing on the text, though. I'm not imposing it. I'm deriving it from the text. The only it's reason still, we can it's make still, it's still not stated. It's definitely not exegetical, right? Uh, the mean, only it's... way we can the only way we can make sense of the world is through logically. What's that? Through the word of the Father. Through through the word, we have to presuppose biblical truth. That's 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 why we we have a grounding for logic. That's why we have a um, a grounding for. Um, I guess what I'm saying is when this when this topic just came up a few minutes ago, I started mentioning a whole bunch of scriptures and I'm I'm not getting them from you. I'm getting logic. Okay. So, so all of the, all of the scriptures you, you cited off, you're assuming that those are in accordance with your worldview, but they're not They're Those are Trinitarian verses and they're explained by the economic Trinity. So even this one here, Sean pulls up Hebrews one nine, which reads, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So again, if we're, if we don't take the definition of the word God, I can, 
totally understand how a Trinitarian could use this to support their case. But if I actually knew the definition and, and where this came from in Psalm 45, 6 and 7, this is where this is being quoted from. Then I see that you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, because this is this is describing Yeshua, right? Therefore, mm -hmm. God speaking to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Therefore, Jesus, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. That is the the res the uh, the priesthood and the resurrection. He gets, but mm -hmm. still, it's the priesthood, the oil of the oil that's poured on the high priest, right? So this is how he becomes above everyone else. Just like Hebrews chapter one explains, he's even above the angels, right? Yeah. He's above all. But it's there, like it directly tells us, you've loved righteousness, which is right behavior and hated lawlessness. Therefore, Jesus, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy. Mm -hmm. So why is it calling, how would you define the fact that it's calling Jesus God and his father, his God, and still say that they're co-equal in power? Well, Jesus poses the exact same conundrum when he refers to Psalm 110, uh, and he says, how can David call the Messiah his Lord if he's also his son? Wasn't Jesus debunking the false premise that the Pharisees were throwing at him about and um, assuming that's, that Psalm 110 was talking about David and not a mess messianic prophecy? Well, the word kurios is, is the word that the, the Septuagint ref uses to refer it's like how we use Lord. I mean, you know this. So we use the word Lord to translate the Tetragrammaton in the Old Testament. Um, Lord is is curious. And Jesus says, you know, it's it's Yahweh says to my Lord, but Jesus says, How can how can well, you that, call him well in the Hebrew it says uh Adonai, which is Adonai is Lord in Hebrew. Okay. But it's not Yahweh, because it says Yahweh says to my Adonai in the Hebrew in, in Psalm one ten one. Yes, correct. But yeah. By the time you get to Second Temple Judaism, the word kirios. I don't, I don't subscribe in, to Judaism, though. What's that? I, I I don't subscribe to Judaism, though. No, but the 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 or their interpretations of because they reject the Father and the Son, so I don't take any information from them. No, no, I'm I'm what I'm saying is the word kirios, this the same word that is used in the New Testament by Jesus there in that passage, when he says, "How can he call him Lord when he when he is his son?" Jesus is, is presenting to them this paradox that the son of David is also the Lord of the universe. The word Lord is a very loaded term. It's, it's the word that was used to, to translate the Tetragrammaton, which is referring to Yahweh. Well, Jesus also told his disciples um, and in Matthew 11 that, I mean, all authority in heaven and earth is given to the Messiah, mm -hmm. to the son of God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how can he be in the same authority of the father if he's receiving authority from the father? Because with respect to his humanity, and listen, it's a fair question. I, I get it. I understand. It's This is very challenging. But not with respect... Respectfully, not not for me. <laughs> like, it, I mean, it's I'm, very simple to, to my understanding of the scriptures. Yeah, there's I, a father, there's a son. The son is always, in all of life, the son is less than the father. Yeah. With, with respect to his humanity, he is. But, you know, when Jesus says, I and the father are one in John 10, 30... Uh, Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name real quick. Sure. My glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved sure. idols. These are, these God, are definitely, definitely. God does not. So you, you've got, you've got a, a Lord, you've got Yahweh who is very jealous for his own glory. He does not share it. Do you know he does not share his glory with another. Yeah. It, it's and then idol. you've got Jesus receiving, 
You've got Jesus receiving worship as Lord and God by Thomas, by uh, the saints in Revelation. And in the same conversation, he tells Thomas, I go back to my God and your God. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why you would receive obeisance and worship, which is a different form of worship than the worship that Yeshua performs in his high priesthood position to the Father for a mediation, is that is he is the high priest of Israel is the king of Israel. It's the highest respected person of all of Israel. No, the priest and the kingship. Well, that's in Exodus, brother. The the priest and the king are distinct offices, though. The, 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 well, that's Zechariah 6, 11 through 15. The whole point of the prophecy of Messiah was that both offices would be married together in this Messiah. Yes. Oh, in as the, as the Messiah, the priest is the king. Yes. I thought you meant in the Old Covenant. Yes, and in the Old Covenant. The high priesthood was one of the top rulers of the, of the entire the Israel. Did you say that the priest was the king? Yeah, it's yeah. There's the term from the Melchizedek, right? It's a righteous ruler, right? And then over time, between the, the tribe of Levi and Judah, that got get, that got split off to where the descendants of Judah became the kingship, and then the descendants of Levi became the, the got the high priesthood position. But Melchizedek to, predated the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm, I understand that. Yeah. So he yeah. was not an he was not a well. They predated the birth of Jacob, who later is called Israel, whom his descendants are referred to as Israel. But ultimately, it's the same. They're following the same the same covenant, like you've talked about earlier. No, the not same, the same covenant. My 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 position is that there's one plan, but different covenants. So okay. the so how is so, it different then from actual dispensation theology? Well, because dispensationalism can't get the church and Israel together. Um, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. So. And I think that's one of the bullet points you guys had on your on your mm -hmm. list of Correct, covenant yeah. theology beliefs. Okay. But but real quick, going back to um, this idea of Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a type of Christ in the sense that he is fulfilled by the antitype. Mm -hmm. Jesus, this is what you know Hebrews is getting at when it says you're a priest forever, citing the Psalms, you're a priest forever mm -hmm. in the order of Melchizedek, set in contrast to the Levitical priesthood. So well, you uh, remember that the, the, the context though of hebrews 7 as it's juxtaposing the differences of qualification between the, the levitical priesthood and the melchizedek priesthood is that the levitical was based on genealogy that came down through levi this is the the covenant promise to levi in malachi Correct. chapter 2 4 through 8 whereas yeshua being from the tribe of judah someone that has not ministered on the altar of god is stepping into a melchizedek role in a different order right yeah without it, without genealogy and because so, he doesn't have to have a Levite father or mother, right? He doesn't have to be based on that. He, yeah. And him, it's based on his indestructible life. Like verse, right, and, and Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews, goes, uh, does this really cool literary trick with, you know, what's recorded there in Genesis. And he says, look, Melchizedek, we, he, he's, he's without mother and father. He's without genealogy. And, and that, that literary device by Moses points to a, a theological truth that Jesus himself is without origin is without. Um, but I mean, you know, his father, his heavenly father was the almighty and his earthly father was, you know, mother and father. He had an earthly mother and father. So right, I, which, I, mean, it, it, I would suggest but, it's but not, you're presupposing that Jesus emanated from the father at some point. Well, some timeless point in the, in no, the I was talking about his, his manifestation in the flesh. Right. And, and this is why you have to keep his incarnation and his uh, divine nature distinct you you, was, was when you're, he, not, when you're, he was born through a woman of a woman right we both mm -hmm. agree on that yeah of okay course. okay he's that's god in look. the flesh he's that's yahweh in the flesh yeah he doesn't call himself yahweh he is called yahweh though mm, okay i would disagree um in I fact know. so <laughs> when i brought up that passage earlier from first corinthians 15 where he says at, when all of this is done and he hands back over the authority of the father do you think at that point he's gonna gonna go back to being co-equal with the father He's always co-equal with the Father. Even he though is, he says he's not, and the Scripture says he's not? No, no, no. He's 
co-equal in nature does not mean they, they play identical roles. So okay. um, it's, especially when you factor in the fact You're just that, talking about the essence of his ontology. You're just talking about the essence of his actual nature, not his appointed position and authority over the covenants. Co correct. His okay. position, his position that he has willingly taken on, and he alludes to this and says it very, he doesn't even allude to it. He says it expressly in scripture is that he only does what the father tells him to do as man. Jesus exercises um, the kind of authority that is above every created thing. This is why he can tie up the strong man and plunder from him. Uh, the strong man being Satan. Uh, and, and yet as man positionally for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. And so angels came and ministered to him. You know, Jesus was hungry. Jesus wept. Jesus. Uh, hmm? He was in the flesh at that time. Yeah. Yes. He was. He, yes. To be clear, he was, he was sinless. So just to right. define our terms. Yeah. Right. Um, but yes, he, he walked in the flesh. He tabernacled among us as John one, one through 12 says. So why but does Jesus, Jesus call Yahweh the almighty? that there is one true God in John 17, three. There is one true God, that, that one true God. It's, it's right and proper to speak of Jesus as one true God. The father Jesus, is one true God oh, and, oh, okay. and the Holy spirit as one true God, because there's one name. This is well, why that, we're baptized into the name singular of the father, it. son, and Holy spirit. I love it. What is the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit? What does that mean in the Greek and the Hebrew? What's the definition of that word? Well, it, it refers to his nature and his authority, his Lordship. Okay. Awesome. Which has to do with his authority, control, and presence. Huge shout out to John Frame, who defines lordship that way. Authority, control, and presence. And when you understand the triune nature of God, all of life comes into clearer focus and makes so much sense. And that doesn't mean that the Trinity is somehow now easy to define. And some people, they say, well, we can't define it. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. And therefore, we're going to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. But the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Scripture forces us to wrestle with this doctrine and to, to honor Christ the Lord as holy by honoring his word and by defending that word. We can't give up what his word says simply because it's hard to understand. I'm not saying Sean is making a conscious decision to do that, but as we go, we're going to see he actually has some misunderstandings about what Orthodox Trinitarian belief actually is. So are you a classical Trinitarian or more like a Sibelian, more like a modalist? What, what type of no, camp do you follow? No, I'm not a modalist, no. Okay, all right. Well, because you just said that Yeshua was Yahweh, but classical Trinitarian, from my understanding, would be that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're co-equal, co-divine, and then co-eternal. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, the, the modalist would be like Yahweh sent him, like cloned himself and sent himself as a son. Yeah. No, okay, so you're not in that camp. So you are in the camp that the Father and Son are two distinct persons like like daniel saw in his vision he saw the ancient of days and then he saw the son of man of course yeah okay all right that's why that's why jesus can pray to the father yeah okay awesome and then but you're just saying that the idea which i would try to define the word in john 17 i think jesus defines it for us in his prayer where he says that i and the father are one and then he goes on to pray for all believers that they may be one even as we are one mm -hmm. so we don't think that Yeshua that jesus is is praying for all believers to be in the same authority as he received from the father do we correct no no. Okay. 
but we do get that at, when we become priests and kings with him. We, we, we're under his Melchizedek. He's our high priest in the Melchizedek order, and then we are in that same authority and that priesthood with him at the resurrection. Well, we reign with him, but there's no, there's never any, uh, there's never any confusion about who's the Lord. Of course. Even when Jesus, right. Even when Jesus washed his disciples feet, it was very clear. He said, if I, you know, your, your master do this, uh, you know, how much more should you do this? And Jesus called himself master. He said, a servant is not greater than his master. So, yeah. So there's never any confusion. The high priest was, was over other priests, right? So you can be a, you can be a priest in the Melchizedek priesthood with Yeshua, but he's still the high priest. That's the position given to him. Yes. And we are, we are priests now. We are, we are, so how under priests doing? now in that in that we um we we can um if when we evangelize and we communicate the gospel to an unbeliever we are functioning as someone who is leading someone to jesus and so we um well that i mean that is definitely being ambassadors for christ right as, mm-hmm. as paul talks about i 100 percent understand that but doesn't the actual priesthood like those words don't they have a strict definition to them as far as what they do and their roles and functions and i mean this is this is all i'm trying to say is uh, i think a lot of this um because i did grow up in everything you're you're talking about and i've stepped away from a lot of these interpretations so because i've try to look up the definitions of these words. So Trinitarian argument aside, as far as the nature and the, the specific idea of Yeshua before the world began, um, because from what I understand, we seem to agree on everything as far as he was God before the world began. He came in the flesh as a man. He resurrected, given the appointment as a God under the authority of the Father. Yeah. We view him and worship him as God. Um, and so I, yeah. I understand that. But we don't, is Yeshua, who's Yeshua? ministering to in the heavenly temple as Hebrews 8 talks about. Um, sorry, real quick. You said you think that we agree on all these points. I, I'm going to disagree with you on that first point because um, I think we have point? a different definition of God. When you say when you say that Jesus was God before the creation of the world, mm-hmm. I, I affirm that obviously, um, but God is is triune, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so... So that's what I was talking about earlier is that even though... We, there's we one can, name, three persons. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Well, the name means authority. So I understand. I totally agree. There's and nature. Authority. It's not just authority. It's nature as well. well. Okay. Well, then, well, let me ask you this thing. And I've glory. Already, right. I've already tried to distinguish that Jesus's nature before he became manifest in the flesh was of an Elohim status of what's considered God. Because there's two natures in all of creation. Technically three, I guess. But uh, there's two natures in all of creation, which is the, the spiritual nature and then the earthy. First Corinthians 15. Okay, I I might so I might draw the line he... a little, with, with respect to, um, so we are we are spiritual, created in the image of God, but um, you, there's you've a been given the breath of life, the spirit of God to animate you and give you understanding and function, but yeah. you are made of earth. Yes, but I'm also a spiritual man. You well, what verse are you going off of? Uh, hold on, let me look it up. Okay, because I know Romans um, seven four says the law is spiritual, or Romans seven twelve. And Joel, I appreciate you, brother. Anytime you need to step out, I understand. I, we've gone I, a little over the time. Uh, no, I know that. Uh, I know, and I'm I'm getting I'm getting sucked, and I got a lot of stuff I got to do the rest of this day. But this is good. I appreciate the opportunity, Sean. Um, we probably should wrap it up very soon, but all right. First Corinthians two ten through sixteen. All right. So, all right. I don't. Let me let me let me come back to this. Um, it's okay. That's right. Because we, I need we can, to I need fine. to outline this. Um, Okay, so so the the fundamental line separating all reality is between creator and creation. Do you agree with that? 
I agree. All I was trying to ask John one, for, one three or John one one three three. Well, I was just trying to ask for a, a, a your working definition when you talk about the nature of Jesus and the Father um, before the world was created. And I, if you could, because I know that I'm I'm created of dirt and the breath of life, right? What do you think they were created of? What I mean, we're not maybe that's the wrong way to word it. What do you think their nature is b- made of? Well, Jesus said that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit well, and in truth. I agree, but so I'm spirit. asking to define what do you think spirit is? Uh, mind not extended into space, I guess. Non-physical. Okay, so, okay. But, but again, I'm drawing but, that line but be- did, but, before you're drawing it. I'm, I'm drawing the fundamental line between creator, who exists necessarily, and creation. So I'm again, I'm, I... I I'm going back to John 1, 3, where there's two categories of reality, that which has been made and that which has not been made. And everything that has been made was made through Jesus. Okay. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe if you could define what you think Jesus is or what you think the son is, because there's only so many things he could be. Is he an emanation? Is he scripture? Hmm? At what point in scripture do you want the answer for what Jesus is? However you, however you want to answer it. Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you three. I'll give you the Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he doesn't change unless you think he does change. Well, that's talking about his behavior, not his ontology. Cause clearly first Timothy three sixteen says that he was manifested in the flesh, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that did not result in that. Sorry, go on, go on. Yeah. Okay. He's yeah. still, I know uh, the Trinitarian arguments. I know brother. It's okay. So all I'm saying is before the world began, he was with the father. I believe he was a part of creation with the father. And I believe well, wait, wait. he was a part of creation about, he was a part of creating creation with the father. Okay. And I believe that they, the angels create on day one. And then we have the creation week follows mankind's created on day six. They mm-hmm. rest on day seven. He is just as he tells Pilate in John 18, 38 and 39, he's king of heaven and earth. He is under the authority of the father as king of heaven who sent to the earth, manifested in the flesh through the womb of a woman, lived without transgressing the covenant behavior, which is called eternal, which they keep in heaven, by the way, and then was killed, martyred on a cross, not on a temple, not by the hand of a priest, but by his betrayers. Mm-hmm. And re- uh, three days in the heart of the earth, resurrected. And now he's given a glorified, incorruptible body, as Paul explains to us in Hebrew, uh, Romans 8, 11, 11 through 19. And then now he's ascended to the Father in Acts chapter 1 to get to his priesthood, right? Which is this place of authority at the right hand of the father as high priest of the covenant and of Israel to make atonement for you and I, as we repent and confess our sins. And then he's going to resurrect us on the day of the Lord. Um, and that way we can have our eternal glorified bodies and step into the new covenant with him to inherit the promise of the new covenant, which is the kingdom of God, which is this physical literal kingdom that he will bring from heaven above down to the land of earth below. And this is why he's called king of the kingdom. And this is why he is considered God before the world began. And once he's resurrected and ascended to the father. So is Jesus Yahweh? He's not his father. He's the son. No, but is he, is he rightly referred to as the I am? No, not that's a horrible mistranslation of John eight. Sean is referring to John eight fifty eight, where the Jews had been questioning Jesus about how he could have possibly known Abraham when he's not even 50 years old. Abraham lived thousands of years before. But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, 
but I am. That is an intentional statement. We know what he meant. We know how the Jews took it because as soon as he says it in verse 58, in verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. They understood he was claiming to be the I am. He was claiming to be Yahweh. And that for them was a blasphemous claim. And it would have been blasphemous if it weren't true. Hmm? That That's a Trinitarian lean on John 8. Yeshua is not uh, just is not the father and is, no, he's not it, being referenced in Exodus chapter three. So is Jesus, so Jesus is not Yahweh by your no, view. Yahweh is the father, the almighty as Deuteronomy 32 another Psalm, a whole bunch of places say, and Jesus is the son of the father sent to be our Messiah and Savior. Yeah. So I, I, I heard the, the knee jerk reaction against John eight fifty eight, where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. Uh, yeah. He existed with the father before the world began before Abraham ever was born. Yeah, but yeah. but he does call himself I am. Ego Amy is is I yeah, am. Yeah, but, but that that does okay. I hear what you're saying. Uh, he did exist before the world began. He tells us that in John six chapters later in John seven. He doesn't say right? I was though. He what says I am. About? Well, he says it in the present tense. You mean like in Revelation one, the one who was, who is, and is to come? No, I mean in John eight fifty eight when he says I know I'm, I'm was I am. I'm sorry. I'm I'm cross referencing other descriptions of Yeshua spoken sure. about himself. Yeah, yeah. but. So I'm yeah, saying, but, do, but do we ignore, do we ignore, like if we're trying to stand alone on the fact that Jesus said to the Pharisees, when they said, how can you be, you know, before Abraham, you're not even 50 years old. And he's like, before mm -hmm. Abraham was, I am. Yeah. Right. He doesn't Meaning say that, I was. Do you think Abraham lived before he was given a body on and lived on the earth? No, of course not. No. Okay. I just Real quick, sure, though, Sean. There's some versions of, of this that they do. So therefore, no, no. Yeshua, Yeshua is different because he did exist before we got a body. Of yes, he did. But listen to the way that you just phrased that. So you, you phrased that the way a normal person would, the way that I would, the way that anyone would. Before Abraham existed, Jesus existed. Past tense. We So when you made that reference to Revelation, the one who was, the one Jesus, who is at this Jesus, moment. That's and the, the same one who, thing in John 17, 3 and 4, yeah, 5. He says the same right, thing. But, he was with the Father for the world. But that's not what he's doing in John 8, 58. This is why. Okay. So, so this is why in Revelation, the one who was is at the current moment, at the present time, and then the one who will be. Um, all well and good. But what Jesus is doing in John 8, 58 is he's calling himself, I am. That that illusion was not lost on the Pharisees. They understood exactly what he was doing. Um, real quick, before you jump in there, um, Psalm 23, 1, God is the good shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus is the shepherd. Uh, Psalm 27, 1, God is the light. Uh, John 8, 12, Jesus is the light. They are both rightly referred to as the rock, the ruler of all, the judge of all, the bridegroom. Sure. Proverbs. Neither, well, well, neither of their the words never way. Real quick, the, the sower, the first and the last. So all, all of these attributes and all of these actions that Yahweh seems to possess, Jesus has the same ones. He's described in analogous terms, identical terms. Okay. Of course, he said only does the message. his fathers does. Here we're going to see some latent misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Oftentimes when people don't like the Trinity, it's because they have a faulty understanding of it. Now, I'm not saying every Orthodox Christian out there really understands the Trinity. I'm not saying I fully understand it, that, that doctrine, the nature of God. But to misrepresent it shows that you might be rejecting a doctrine that, man, not even Orthodox Christians believe. Maybe you ought to go back and rethink it. So what I'm trying to say to you is, right. why would why would the scriptures emphatically go through all these links to tell us there's a father and a son, 
and that he sent his son if it was really just the father he sent. Himself. It's not the father. I'm not a modalist. And I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding of Trinitarian theology because you keep going well, back then, to modalism. Well, it's then not respectfully, modalism. I'm asking for a better clarification from you on how you view this moment of manifestation of the son, because I've tried to very patiently delineate the difference between the father and the son pre-incarnate and then him, the son being sent by the father incarnate. And then you're going back to what I would say is things taken out of context to, to still com combine them in a Trinitarian use of the word one, instead of being in their one in authority, combining them in one in ontology. When we, I thought we already delineated their, their natures and two different beings. One's no. being sent to the earth and the other one no. doesn't. No. You're, so you're, so you do believe they're the same being even? No, no. Yes. Same being, but not the same person. So again, I, See, this is where Sean, this doesn't make any sense to people. This is what I've tried to, I've had interviews and debates, unfortunately, with people that yeah, hold Trinitarian views. And I, I get it. And you can, because you're, you're really well spoken. And that's why I, I really wanted to, you know, to have you on and talk about this more. And I'd love to have you on some more um, because I think it's really good for people to understand these differences. Because respectfully, brother, the Trinitarian argument and, and even, man, even like famous Trinitarian debaters, they do not make sense of this at all. Not, not even to you. They make sense to no. me. Yeah, not to the it, definitions of the words. That's the that's the dividing line I'm trying to. Oh, yes, they do. I mean, yes, they yeah. do, Sean. Uh, so, so let me just back up and just give a broad thirty thousand foot bird's eye view. Father and Son. We're going to leave the Holy Spirit out for a minute. Father and the Son. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying for the sake of because that's all we've been talking about for the last ten minutes, right? Right. The Holy Spirit's yeah. always. I mean. Again, I don't divide those three, but go on. Okay, but I'm just saying that's we've just we haven't mentioned that. So we've just been talking about the Father and Son. So okay. I'm trying to say before the world was created, I don't know what I don't know what it looked like before the world was created, right? I don't know where they were sitting or where they were standing or where they were floating, right? So I don't know what the, I don't know how to visualize that. I don't know if it's like Thanos and the in the nether realm just kind of floating around in some weird space, right? I don't know what that looks like. All I know is the Father and the Son. I believe the Scriptures tell us they ex both existed before the world was created. So with that in mind, I, I know the rest of the story tells me that the father sends his son to the earth to become a man through the mm -hmm. womb of a woman. And we both agree on that. Yeah. The father sent the son and the son willingly went. Awesome. But the point of disagreement is where back here before the world began, you say these two entities are separate. Not, not entities. See, again. So now we're I, just getting into the, okay. Help me no, understand it, it, the wording that you would like to use. Then. People people write off these distinctions as if we're just talking about, uh, you know, we're arguing over words as the apostle tells us not to do. Um, but when we're talking about entities, an entity is a self-sufficient, uh, self-contained um, being. God is God is one, as you well know from the Shema. So wait, wait, how would an entity not describe what you've been describing then? Because that is not how Scripture describes God. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's saying we're unified, but he also, um, he, he, the, he reveals himself and describes himself as being one in nature with God, sharing in lordship with identical right. uh, we authority. Agree on that, That's what I'm so confused about. We agree on but, that. We have agreed on that. And then when I talked about no, the physical, their physical bodies, I try to say that you agree. Physical, you do you believe the Father has a physical body? Well, that's what I was saying. Uh, they have a spiritual body, and so what is that? How does that defined in Scripture? Like, I wouldn't even know. say that. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I don't okay, know so that I'd say, say the Father has a spiritual body. Scripture this is, this is from a, from one apologist to another. All I'm asking from your brother is, hey, can you can you give me the words that you would use yeah. to to accurately define that the Father and the Son before the world began? Sure. And what you think that looks like? Yeah, there's one God. He has always been there in three persons. The three persons exist 
necessarily they are distinct from one another. The father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father. Real quick, okay. you asked. You asked for an explanation. Yeah. Couple of things here. I'm not sure what Sean's view is of the Holy Spirit. Earlier, he referred to the Holy Spirit as an it, but I caught it and I didn't address it because I wasn't sure if he was just referring to the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's very possible. I, I, I'm not even going to speculate because I don't know what Sean's view is here. But I do wish that I had pushed him on that as well. Because in scripture, the Holy Spirit is described in personal terms. He is personal. He's the third person of the Trinity. So that's one thing. Another thing is that, did you notice how Sean keeps on calling me brother? He really makes it a point to call me brother and how he's an apologist and I'm an apologist. Here's the problem. Sean and I do not have the same heavenly father. My heavenly father is Yahweh, the first person of the Trinity. His heavenly father, it does not exist. He is a monadic God who is not triune. He is Unitarian. I don't know if Sean uses these terms. I don't suppose that he does, but we do not have the same father. We cannot be brothers. We are not brothers in Christ because we have different Christs. My Christ, my Jesus, is the Jesus that the Bible presents. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Lord of glory. He is Yahweh. He is equal to the Father ontologically, meaning he is just as much Yahweh and God as God the Father is. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit by God's grace, who is also God. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ is our elder brother. He's also our master. He's our king. He's our friend. But he's our elder brother because we share the same heavenly father. If God, the true God of scripture, is not your heavenly father, then Jesus is not your brother. And that means that other Christians, Christians are not your brothers. So Sean makes a point to always be calling Christians brothers, but I'm not convinced that we are brothers. So if you notice, I don't call him brother. I'll call him Sean. I would call him a friend, but I wouldn't call him brother. That is not out of spite. That's out of respect for his views. I recognize that his views are different from mine. And it's out of a desire to honor Christ the Lord as holy, even as I defend what the Bible teaches, or at least do my best to do so. So at this point, we're going to continue describing and discussing the Trinity. We're also going to talk about the role of Jesus as the high priest. So then so, you're defining God as the, the nature of their familyhood. God, uh, once you start getting into analogies like family. So it can't be described? Gonna, no, it can be described. You just, okay. uh, it, but God is purely and totally unique. So what I'm saying is once you start getting into analogies, you start to describe what God is like by comparing him to something within his creation, you know, you could compare him to the laws of logic. You know, you could compare him to, uh, I wouldn't compare him to a family or, you know, three modes of, you know, uh, water, steam and ice or something like that, because you start getting into modalism or, or, or um, you know, these different heretical descriptions, but. Or do you come from a Catholic background? No. Okay. Okay. I didn't, I'm sorry. Just, no, no, that's fine. That's where the word her heretic comes from. So I just didn't know if that, I guess that's been carried over into Protestant theology. So. Okay. I just mean, uh, non, non, uh, let's say, uh, unbiblical to the point of at least jeopardizing, if not nullifying the biblical salvific gospel. Okay. Uh, do you defend the Trinity to the point where you, you believe or try to show that the Trinity idea was before Catholicism? 
Oh, of course. Yeah, it's it's biblical. Well, that's what everyone will say for a doctrine they believe in, brother. You know that, right? So that's where but I'm that doesn't. Say, but I'm not everyone, and I'm. Well, I'm just saying the average. Anyone can believer, say anything that they want, sure. But yeah. But you asked me if I think that it predates Roman Catholicism. I said, of course, yeah, it's, it's a biblical doctrine. Okay. So what I'm trying to, what I'm picking up from the, from the Trinity part of our conversation, which is apparently bleeds into some of these seven points of new covenant theology for you is that I, yeah, I've tried to define things as, as accurate as possible from the scriptures to the best of my understanding and knowledge that I've heard you and I agree on like 90, 99% of this stuff, but because I'm not using the right descriptors, maybe of. No, the, it's not. Again, Sean, it's not the descriptors. It's what the descriptors are describing. You know, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Yeah, but he also says he's not the Father, though, right? Mm -hmm. No, but he's the exact uh, imprint, the exact image of the Father. Yeah, the exact representation of the Father. Mm -hmm. He he does everything the Father. uh, Everything I do and say, I've seen the Father. Yeah, and he receives worship as as God, and God does not share his glory with another. He receives respect, right? Because of his position of authority. He's worshipped as Lord and God. He's called Lord. Right, but he's All also a the, high priest. So, what does that mean in this in God's system? Yeah, right? he's, he's is a high priest greater than the Father? Is what high priest? The, the, one, the high priest of Israel that Yeshua was granted the position of. Is the high priest greater than the Father? Yeah. The are are you just asking if Jesus is greater than the Father? Uh, well, I'm, you, I'm saying you're trying to okay. I. This is where it gets strange for me because I don't understand the disconnect. So we both agree that the, there's a father and the son. You're saying they've, they have they have the same respect, the same worship, the same honor, the same yes. essence. I have no problems with any of that, um, except for when he's in the flesh. But now he's glorified again. But as far I mean, as even in the flesh, but gone. Okay, well, he's he worshipped as God. Yeah, but he, well, that he's respected as God. Worship is an actual definition to it through a priesthood position in a temple. And we see Yeshua fulfilling that definition of worship in Hebrews chapter eight to the father. And this is what I'm saying. He has a, he has a job. Like we can't ignore Mm -hmm. the prophecy of our Messiah who was sent to to do a job, right? That's the economic Trinity. I, what, what you're saying is, is biblical and it's in line with Trinitarian doctrine. This is why I'm wondering if you're just misunderstanding Trinitarianism. I mean, I hear you say that it doesn't make sense to you, but well, maybe, or you don't maybe, think it makes sense at all. But maybe I've had Trinitarians very poorly explain their case to me. It could be. Not. And listen, it could be that I'm yeah. very doing a very poor job myself right now. But yes, Jesus has a job. Yes, Jesus is the priest. He's the prophet. He's the king. He's the greater Moses. That's what the book of Hebrews is about, is that Jesus is greater. Well, well but Moses, yeah, I agree with that. He is the greater Moses. But Moses wasn't um, the high priest of the Israel. Aaron was. So I'm yeah, saying Jesus like, is the greater Aaron as well. He's the greater priest. Yeah, so that what, I guess my question is, what do you think he's specifically doing in that position of jobhood of that of his job that was prophesied to him that he he ascended to heaven to obtain that job in the mm-hmm. temple in heaven, and Hebrews eight says that he's up there ministering. Just this is what Paul's referring to in First Timothy two five. This is how he creates propitiation and atonement for us by ministering in the temple. Well, he in has he has God. already he the his propitiation was once and for all. That was his death on the cross. So he does not need that, to. But that's not what the scriptures say, brother. Oh, yes, it is. Afraid that so. is well, Hebrews. Do you want to go to Hebrews 8 real quick? Yes, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to get going. Okay. okay. I've been waiting for a good uh, stopping point without it without it seeming like I just didn't want to answer a question or talk about something. Uh, cool. So, yeah, I'd love to get together with you again, brother. I appreciate you coming on. Okay. Thanks so much, Sean. Take care. Yeah. Have a good God day. Bless. You too. You too. So, let's look back at what we've just seen. 
I shared why I believe God has one plan to save his people, revealed in many covenants. We talked about how no one can perfectly obey the old covenant commands and how the work that God requires us to do today is to believe in his son, Jesus. We talked about how the old covenant law was for the unrighteous, not the righteous, in 1 Timothy 1.9. I explained why we are in the new covenant and why it's Jesus' death, not ours, that inaugurated that, that made him the mediator of the new covenant. And we discussed that to be righteous in the new covenant means to have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, credited to us, as it, as it refers to in Hebrews 8, 11 through 13, even as we continue to be sanctified in our lifestyle as we go, as we live. We talked about paradise and that when believers die, we will go to be with the Lord, Luke 23, 43. I shared how we are free from the old covenant. And you even heard how Mr. Griffin denies the Trinity and doesn't believe that Jesus is rightly called Yahweh, the I am, John 8, 58. And I shared why, despite my personal respect for Mr. Griffin, I stopped short of calling him brother. Now, this was long, but the original video on Sean's channel, on Mr. Griffin's channel, is even longer if you can believe it. There is an extended intro where I share some of my story, and he and I answer some questions that come from live viewers. You can watch that on his channel, Kingdom in Context. The link is in the show notes. All in all, I feel good about the conversation. There are some things that I would have done differently. I've mentioned those. And so I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of these conversations, and may the Lord Jesus be glorified, and I hope that you have been edified through this in some small way. If this is the kind of conversation that you enjoy, you have to know about the Think Squad. Right now, there are nearly 700 others who are on the same journey as you, seeking to become the worldview leaders that their families and their churches need. We share resources, we share ideas, insights, skills. If that sounds like something that would help you, then what are you waiting for? Open up Facebook, search for Think Squad, T-H-I-N-K-S-Q-U-A-D, join the group, answer the membership questions. That's all it takes. Well, as always, this is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. It is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedekes, and I'll see you next time.